Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Wella. Um, let's turn to John chapter 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6. Today, uh, like for the last several weeks, we have been covering uh, the I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. And if you remember last week, we talked about uh, the I am statement where Jesus declared that he was the resurrection or he is the resurrection and the life. And uh, this morning, we will be in John chapter 14, verse 6, and we will be covering Number six of the seven I am statements. Next week, we'll cover the last I am statement. And so this morning, we'll be covering number six of the seven. In John 14, six, Jesus says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me read that again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this I am statement is kind of sandwiched in between two asks that are made by Philip and Thomas. Now, in response to uh, Jesus telling his disciples um, that they've seen the Father, in response to Jesus saying, if you've seen me, then you've seen my father. In response to that statement, uh, Philip asked the question, Lord, show us the father. Show us the father. Like, we want to see him physically. We want to see him literally. And at the same time, uh, in response to Jesus declaring that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can go to the father but through me, uh, Thomas asks Philip, show us the way. So Philip, uh, Thomas asked Jesus, so Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, and Thomas asked Jesus, show us the way. And so uh, this overall story, uh, the disciples, uh, even though they're questioning Jesus, and when we're on readers and we're, we're looking at, we're observing the story, we can sometimes look at the disciples and kind of find them to be a little dense, I don't know if you've ever read the scriptures, but they tend to ask wrong questions at the wrong time. Um, they tend to say things out of turn. Uh, Peter says things that he shouldn't be saying. Kind of, He's the stick, the foot in the mouth disciple, right? He's always talking a little too much. We all have those in our family, right? Some of you might be sitting next to one. Um, and so the disciples are kind of a, you know, the disciples throughout the gospels are kind of characterized as kind of these kind of dense guys that don't kind of truly understand the magnitude of the situation. And I, um, I've heard preachers talk about the density of the disciples, and, and, but I think that's a little unfair. Uh, I think I talked about this last week. you got to remember that the disciples were moving in their understanding of Jesus. They were progressively understanding the revelation of who he was. And so with every miracle and with every statement, with every dialogue, the disciples were hearing for the first time all of this new revelation. Now, you and I, we have years and years, hundreds of years of opportunity to study it, to look at it, to read it over again. We've had commentators uh, sit down and, 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 and be able to write kind of study Bibles so that we can understand it. So as though we, we, we let's not take the disciples for granted. I have a feeling like if I was there, I would probably be even more dense. You know, imagine if somebody just wrote a biography about you and just your just all of your all of your inconsistencies. So I, I thank God he didn't write about me. <laughs> you know, when we're preaching about, you know, Philip's failure this morning, you know. And so I thank God that I was there. So hopefully today as we kind of get through this and we talked a little bit about the disciples questioning Jesus, we'd understand kind of where they're coming from and we kind of put ourselves um, in their shoes. So we are, we are the beneficiaries of the first disciples' struggles to understand. Thank God that they questioned and thank God that they struggled to understand because their questions and their struggles, Jesus would then provide commentary and go deeper. And so it's, for, it's out there for all of us to see their dirty laundry, but I, I thank God for that because their struggles equals our understanding. You with me? So in chapter 14, um, verse 1, the opening line is interesting. Jesus says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, Jesus is talking to the disciples when he makes this statement. 
Now, this statement suggests that something had previously happened that troubled the disciples. This statement also suggests something is about to be said that is going to comfort the disciples. Jesus says, hey, disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, there's something that just went on that provided some troubling, something troubled their spirit. But what I'm about to tell you is I'm about to comfort you so that you will not be troubled anymore. And so as we get into the context of the I am statement, we have to take a look once again as what happened previous to this chapter in order to understand this chapter. Why were the disciples troubled? And so I'm going to kind of briefly give you four reasons why the disciples were troubled so you can understand the gravity of the moment. Now in John 12, verse 32 through 33... Jesus implied something horrible to the disciples. So during this, during John chapter 12 through chapter 16, this is known as the upper room discourse. And what the upper room discourse is, it's literally a conversation or a dialogue that's taking place between his disciples. Literally the night before he's going to be crucified. And so things are starting to intensify, but the disciples don't really understand what's going on. And so in chapter 12, Jesus says something or he implies something is coming and it's horrible. Jesus says this, when I'm lifted up to the earth or when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all man to myself. Scripture tells us that Jesus said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So although it's a little coded, the lifting up insinuated Jesus being nailed to the cross on the ground, and then he would be raised up into the sky. And so when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, he wasn't referring to um, if you and me would just kind of sing praises. We would just, you know, it's okay. You know, we lift him up, all men will be drawn unto him. I've even said that myself, right? He wasn't necessarily referring to just sing praises to me, and I'll draw all men unto me. What he was literally saying is, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be nailed to a cross on a dirty ground, and at some point in time, they're going to hoist me up in the air. And at a certain point, I'm going to fall into the ground, and when I am lifted up, all men will be draw unto me. My death will draw people to me. Now, although, amen to us, if you're disciples in that moment, you're thinking, wait a minute. What's going on? Now, skip to the next chapter. That was chapter 12. In chapter 13 of John, Jesus tells disciples, he says this. In a little while, or he says, a little while, for a little while, I'm with you. Then he says, but where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, think about it. They've spent three years with Jesus. And this was perhaps the first time they've ever heard Jesus tell them, Hey, I'm going somewhere, and you can't come. Now, if we skip to, if we continue, same chapter in John chapter 13, a couple of verses before, another heart-stopping comment is made. Jesus says this. Oh, Scripture says this. After these things, Jesus was troubled. Now, it's one thing for the disciples to be troubled. It's another thing for Jesus to be troubled. So the disciples, if you can imagine, they're sitting around, they're in this upper room, they're having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus is being coded, but he's referring to his death on the cross. Jesus is saying something like, hey, I'm going to leave, and you're not, you can't come with me. And so Jesus is having these conversations, they're in this upper room, having this dialogue, and then all of a sudden, while they're dialoguing, the disciples notice that Jesus is troubled. Now, we started this chapter off by saying the disciples were troubled. That's one thing, but to look at the one who calms the storms, to look at the one who's raised the dead, to look at the one who's walked on water, who's healed, who's given sight to the blind, who, who's made the lame man walk, to look at him and see that he's troubled, that's got to be pretty troubling. One thing for the disciples to be troubled, it's a whole other thing to see Jesus troubled. And scripture says Jesus was troubled, and then Jesus testified, or Jesus says this while he's troubled, truly, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Wow. Can you imagine being in a room with Jesus, seeing him raise the dead, 
seeing him walk on water, knowing who he is, and him looking at you and saying, one of you is going to betray me. That is troubling. Can you, I, I, what would you think everyone was saying? Me? Well, somebody say, not me. Praise God for you. I would have been like, is it me? <laughs> is he talking to me? And then I would have guessed somebody else. <laughs> I, no, I know who it is. Probably that guy. <laughs> he doesn't go to church that much. It's probably him. <laughs> right, but if you, it's troubling. Everyone's probably thinking the first thing I would think is, is it me? And the next thing I would think ultimately is like, well, could it be uh, Thomas over there? <laughs> so just imagine just kind of sitting in the room with Jesus and just that fear and that concern and even that wonder as everyone in the room is thinking, Who's going to betray him? Is it going to be me? And then finally in John chapter 13, 37 through 38, um, Peter says to him, Lord, <laughs> this is the stick you're putting in the mouth, disciple. You ready? Lord, why can I not follow you? Why can I not follow you? See, Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. And Jesus says, why can't I? And then Jesus goes on to say, or Peter goes on to say, overconfident Peter, not only why can't I follow you, but you know what, wherever you go, I'm going to lay my life down for you. <laughs> so why can't I follow you? And it doesn't matter where you go, it's death. These guys will run away, but I'm going to lay my life down for you. And listen to what Jesus says to Peter. Jesus answers, you will, or Jesus, Jesus answers and says this, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Will you do that? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. <laughs> so, so let's get this right. Hey, guys, I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be stretched out. And I'm going to go somewhere and you can't go. And by the way, one of you in here is going to betray me. And Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Ouch. It feels like things kind of keep hitting new lows. First, there's separation. Then there's death. Now there's abandonment, betrayal, denial. If you can imagine, you can begin to start to understand why the disciples have troubled hearts. You can see why it felt as if the air had been taken out of the room. All these comments were not isolated incidents. They were all made in this upper room on the same night that Jesus would be arrested and taken for trial. The disciples desperately needed to hear a comforting word from their master because everything they had been hearing was uncomfortable. And it's at this point where Jesus says in John chapter 14, 1 through 9, let not your heart be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. My father's house, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if you go, and if I go to prepare a place for you, will I come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also? You know the way. You know where I'm going. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Good old Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? I know a couple of weeks ago I was all excited because my name was in there. Now I'm not quite there. It only works, you know, when I'm in prayer. But Jesus says, really? <laughs> this is, by the way, this has got to be one of the only times in Scripture where I feel like he's most, like he's kind of irritated. Like Jesus, does, I mean, I know Jesus was the sinless one, but he's got to be pretty close right here. <laughs> Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We're going to stop there.
Now, this morning, I want to divide these nine verses into two sections. Um, the first section is going to be the three promises Jesus makes to his disciples in order to comfort their troubled hearts. The three promises Jesus makes to his disciples in order to comfort their troubled hearts. And then the second portion um, that we'll end with this morning is the I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the I am statement that directs us to those promises and ultimately answers the inquiries of Philip and Thomas. So again, the three promises and the I am statement this morning. So let's talk about the three promises. Like we said, in the opening verses of chapter 14, Jesus gives the disciples three reasons why they should not let their hearts be troubled. Three reasons why they should be encouraged. He encourages their hearts in a very discouraging moment. And the three reasons why, if you're taking notes, are this. Number one, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled because heaven exists. The first reason why is because there is a heaven. Heaven exists. The second reason why is because not only does heaven exist, but there's an abundance of rooms in my father's house. So heaven exists and there's a lot of room there. Amen. And finally, the third thing that would comfort a troubling heart, he says, number one, heaven exists. Number two, heaven not only exists, but there's a lot of rooms up in heaven. He says, number three, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to bring you back to me. So we have the existence of heaven, an abundance of rooms, and there's going to be a permanent reunion that's going to go on. I'm not going to leave you very long. I will come back, and we will be permanently reunited. I love the Lord. Uh, take note. Take note. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled in the same breath right after Peter. Is, he's just told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, somebody needs to smile here. Jesus, knowing Peter's going to deny him, knowing the disciples are going to abandon him, says, don't be troubled, y'all. That's crazy to me. I love how Jesus, how Jesus manages our relationship with him. We constantly fail him. In fact, he knows ahead of time that we're going to fail. He knows we're going to fail before we even know it. Peter's like, yo, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life. Where are you going? I got you. I'm following you. Jesus says, no, no, no. You're not only not going to follow me. Well, he is going to follow him, actually. You're going to kind of follow me, but you're going to deny me three times. He says, but don't let your heart be troubled. <laughs> I'm troubled. I'll say, okay, yeah, yeah, no, what do you want from me, Lord? So the first promise is Jesus promises the existence of heaven. Now, you might say, well, where did heaven come from? I didn't see it when you read it. Well, the phrase, my father's house, is synonymous with what you and I call heaven. It's the place where Jesus came from. And it's the place where he's telling his disciples he's headed back to. Now, I want you to note that Jesus came from there. It, his life didn't just start on earth when, he was, when, he, when, when, he was, when Mary birthed, gave birth to him. You see, Jesus preexisted time. If there was anyone that was authorized to speak about heaven, it was Jesus. Because he is the son of God. He's the one who's come down from heaven. He had firsthand heavenly experience. On the other hand... The disciples had no experience, nor could they know anything about heaven unless they were prepared to believe everything Jesus told them with the kind of absolute, unquestioning faith that they would normally have placed in God the Father. This is why Jesus tells his disciples, if you believe God, believe also what? In me. Essentially, this is what he's saying. I am just as trustworthy as God. It's almost like he's God, right? He is. <laughs> so when you say believe me, or so when I, say, when I say believe God, I'm also saying believe me. I am just as trustworthy as the Father in heaven. You can believe him and you can believe me. And so you could basically say that Jesus is looking at them and saying heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Now, no offense, <laughs> I'm about to go there for a second, but Jesus, listen to this please, Jesus' firsthand experience of heaven is 100% more reliable than any man on earth, including Colton. 
from heaven is real. Y'all remember that movie? Good. You guys didn't watch it. Praise the Lord. So Colton is a young man in the movie Heaven is Real, and I'm sure it's a great movie, and I don't want to bag on it. But he's a young man who all of a sudden begins to see his little sister, um, begins to see his aunties and his uncles, and he has all kinds of these encounters in heaven, and the parents are just, and it's, a, it's, it's touted as a Christian movie, and I don't want to pick on it, okay? I'm not going to pick on it this morning, okay? It's a great movie. Enjoy it. But here's what I want to say. Jesus' experience is 100% more reliable than Colton's. And I want to disciple you in this moment. Okay, here's a little discipleship moment. Remember, don't depend on Hollywood. Don't just attend a Hollywood movie and just think, man, this is Bible. This is it. This is how it went. Anybody watch Noah? I don't know what those little rock things were. I didn't look in the Bible. I had no clue. And I had no clue that Noah was like, you know, team green. That Noah was just like this environmentalist guy. Right, and those rock things are not something like, well, those rock things were, were, you know, they talks about, you know, don't, please, don't let Hollywood dictate, don't let Hollywood dictate your theology. That's not, I planted a church so Hollywood wouldn't dictate your theology. And here's another thing, you ready, you're going to clap for this one, but you may not clap for this one, okay, so give me the clap. Please don't let someone's near-death experience dictate your theology of heaven. And there's people I know, and I love them, and they love the Lord. I don't question their, their salvation, but they're, oh, my gosh, so-and-so had a near-death experience, and heaven was so amazing. They did this, and they said that, blah, blah, blah. and I was just like, Jesus didn't say any of that. Jesus said what he needed to say, and he's 100% reliable because he's been there before. Somebody's like, well, I've been there before. No, I mean, you might have you went, I don't know, you know, maybe I... Maybe, you know, maybe God will teach me a lesson. I, I'll have a near-death experience and come back and be like, guess what, guys, I was wrong. Believe me. But here's, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying about this church. You trust the word of God. No dream, no angel visitation, no man that comes and has a new revelation. That's, that's, called, that's how cults are birthed, and that's how people are led astray. You trust the word of God. And if it's outside of the word of God, high five it. That's cute. That's sweet. Maybe it's like that. But that is not your truth. So when Jesus said heaven is for real, he knows because he was the one that was there before any of us and were ever created. Are you with me? So please don't depend on Hollywood. And I think I'm making a note here. Anytime Hollywood comes out with a new movie, I'm always going to, like, talk about it just so we know what movie works and what movie doesn't. Get those rocks out of nowhere. Man, those things. Okay, so... Number one, heaven exists. Jesus says, don't let, let not your hearts be troubled. My father has a house. Number two, in this house, Jesus says, guess what? There's a few rooms. <laughs> we, got, we got a couple rooms. You know, uh, there's only about five rooms. So you can stay, but you can't. You're outside, right? No, he says, in this house, there are many rooms. Jesus not only reminds the disciples that heaven exists, but he also assures them that there's a place for you. There's a place for them. What a moment of comfort if you think about it. Like, Jesus, can you tell me that? I would love to hear that in my lifetime. No, you're going. You're in. Oh, Jesus said I'm in. Right, that might be a little dangerous, though. But what's really crazy is to go from denying and abandoning to promising them of heaven and that in the Father's house there are many rooms. I mean, this must have ministered much relief to their weary and troubled hearts. Now, I want you to take a note. We've heard some translations that say there are many mansions. Y'all ever heard those translations? But the correct use of this is dwelling places. So don't get all excited. Some of y'all paint a picture of heaven like it's a bunch of luxury, like condominiums and like, you know. So for those of you that just got saved, you haven't been saved very long, you're going to have the two-story. That will be in my backyard. <laughs> As your pastor, I'll, right, you know, so I'll have kind of the bigger mansion. You guys, you know, can come over to the pool and. Right. And so in the heaven, there's many mansions. Whoa, you know, glory. And we're talking about the mansions, and there's going to be mansions. And, and Jesus, Jesus didn't mean it like that. Jesus says, there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places. Now, I recognize some of you are like, oh, really? There ain't no mansions in heaven? I'm leaving this church. <laughs> Where do they preach mansions at? But here's what I want to say. I want to take our eyes and our minds off of mansions and luxury and I want to focus on what Jesus is trying to say he's not trying to emphasize the beauty 
of the dwelling places. He's trying to emphasize that there are many dwelling places. We don't know what this is going to look like, and it could very much well be mansions. But here's what we do know. We know that there is a lot of it. And we know that wherever Jesus is and wherever the Father is, that's where I want to be. I'd rather be with Jesus in the Philippines with no mansion than be in the United States with a mansion and there's no Jesus. Some of y'all still need to learn that. It's one thing to amen and it's another thing to live your life like that. Just because we clap doesn't get us off the hook for doing it. That's why some of you didn't clap. Proud of you. No, I'm kidding. Kidding. But... But, you know, I've learned I want to be with Jesus wherever he's at. And so if he's not in a mansion, I don't want to go there neither. The emphasis here isn't the mansion. The emphasis is the fact that there are many dwelling places. There is enough room. And I love that. Now, here's an interesting point. It's a, actually a point with theological implications I want, to, I want to point to. Jesus says this, and I go to prepare a place for you. Now, here's the question. I want you guys to ponder this question. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. What does he need to prepare? Like, what needs preparation in heaven, guys? You know what I mean? Like, heaven, I feel like it should be already perfect. I'm like, aren't you perfect? Like, it's already prepared. And then Jesus is going to die and resurrect. I'm like, you're already, what else do you need to do to prepare? You've already made the way. Now, uh, there's a commentator by the name of David Gooding, and he says this, great commentator, writes commentaries. He says this, listen to this, uh, in regards to Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place, and in regards to that question, well, what needs to be prepared? This is what he says, when Jesus ascended into heaven and assumed the position that was his before the world began, Jesus sat this time as the man Christ Jesus in heaven. Never before had there been in the immediate presence of God a human being with a glorified body. What adjustments will be necessary in those glorious realms when the millions of Christ's redeemed people follow Jesus into the eternal tabernacle of God's presence, not as disembodied spirits, but as truly and fully human beings with glorified bodies. This we cannot tell, for we are not told. But of this we can be sure. Christ will have prepared accommodations suited to their redeemed humanity, ready to welcome all his people in the Father's house. Never before in the history of heaven has there ever been a glorified human body in heaven. Jesus Christ, when he went back to heaven, he didn't assume his spirit role that he's always assumed, this kind of bodiless spirit being, but he was man. And so when he said, we like to think about when he said, I go to prepare a place, when he ascended into heaven, if you think about it, he goes before us. He's our pioneer, and he ascended into the holy, glory, glorious place next to the Father, and he's sitting right there in human form. You know what that means? That means when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to interact with our Jesus. Number one, let not your hearts be troubled. Heaven exists. There's an abundance of rooms. Finally, number three, so there's going to be a permanent reunion. Jesus promises a reunion. Here we see that the primary purpose of Christ's return is clarified. Y'all want to know why Christ is coming back? This is the primary purpose. The reason Jesus leaves to prepare a place is so that one day he can return and so we can be with him forever. And never, ever wander off again. That's amazing. Yet another powerful promise that will help bring comfort to troubled hearts. I will come again. So where I am, you may be also. And I'm never leaving after that. Let's get into the I am statement. Now after hearing the encouragement of Christ... And the beauty of the Father's house, Thomas asked for directions. He said, hey, Jesus, can I get an address? <laughs> you, know, you know, today, you know, we need the address. All we got is address. Put it in MapQuest. Let me know. I'll meet you there. Right? So Jesus explains, there's a heaven. There's many rooms. I'm going to go. I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas is like, yo, how do I get there? Google Maps, is that what you said? Of course, it would be Christopher. 
It would be Christopher. I, I'm listening. I got. He said, really? We haven't used MapQuest since 1986, Phil. <laughs> We're at Google Maps now. My bad. My bad. My bad. Google Maps. Technology's changing. <clears throat> I still use MapQuest. I still pull it up on a computer and write it the directions down on <laughs> No, I don't do that. I'm just kidding. I did. I did that for a while. <laughs> write the directions down. Take it with me and sit down on my lap as I'm driving. <laughs> oh Lord. Mess me up. I heard it. I just heard. I knew something was going on. My wife, my best friend, I just something not taking. <laughs> so the disciples, in other words, they just want to know, how can we know the way? How can we get there? And I, and I don't blame them. I really don't. Jesus like, there's going to be this great place, my father's house, where you see my father. Uh, and I'm going to prepare a place that we're going to be reunited. And you know the way. <laughs> and I'm, I'd probably be like, well, wait a minute. I know the way. I don't know. Don't leave. I don't know how to get there. Wait. you got to give me an address. Give me directions. Let's Google map it. Whatever i got to do before you go. And it's here in verse 6 where Jesus plainly says, you're looking at the way. Thomas says, hey, how do I get there? How, what's the way? And Jesus says, look, you're looking at the way. And then in verse 7, Jesus follows that up by saying, you're not only looking at the way to the Father's house, but you know the owner of that house. You've seen him before. You know the Father. You've seen him. And amazed by this, but still very much uh, misunderstanding this whole situation, Philip interjects and he says, show us God. That will be the ultimate like, if you show us God, then that'll be enough. I mean, how many times have we prayed that prayer? Lord, if you just do this, that'll be enough. And if you just come through this time, if they don't come get me, amen, right? If he just drops the charges, some of you in here. Oh, I know some of you in here. You see, I know we've had that conversation. Lord, if they would just do this for me, God, I'll serve you. I'll come to church every Sunday. We good. The Lord does it, and you're just, you're just as ratty as you were before it happened. No, I'm playing. I'm playing. Okay. No, you're not. But that's human nature. You say, you say, oh, man, but we've all done it. Everyone has done Lord, if you would just do this, I'll do this. And then you, you know what? We're not perfect. We can't make those promises. We're never going to keep those. Only Jesus can make those kind of promises. Only Jesus can make those kind of I've made those promises, and I've... Lived ratty right after making the promise. And so the object of that promise is that Jesus is the only one that doesn't break promises. We break them all the time. We break them all the time. And, but, Tom, but, you know, Philip is like, look, if you show us fa the Father, that'll be good. That'll be enough. It's, Jesus is like, wait a minute. So I walked on water. <laughs> I've opened blind eyes. I made a crippled man walk. And if you didn't believe that, you didn't believe when I was walking on water. You tried it too. It, you know, you did for a little bit, and then you sank. And I calmed a storm. He goes, and if that didn't work, I just raised someone from the dead a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. He'd been in the grave for four days, and I raised him up. Like, what else do you need, man? If you, but if you show us God, show us the Father. <laughs> now, but, again, I'm, I'm making fun of Thomas or Philip, but here's the truth. Um. What he's asking for Jesus to do, that's the big one. Show us God. Because nobody sees God. Uh, not since Adam and Eve were banished from paradise had, has anyone seen God. And the disciples were very much aware of this. You know, even Moses himself was not permitted to see God. Moses was hidden. And hidden in the midst of the cleft of a rock and God passed by him, but he could only see the backside. He could only see, and I don't even know what that was. That's so profound. It, I don't, he didn't see a back. I'm not quite sure the goodness of God, whatever it was, just passed by Moses. And Moses could not look at him or he'd die. Not even Moses. So Philip's like, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Let it give us the big one. Or can we physically see God? And it's to this request like I said earlier, almost irritated. I don't want to attribute that to Jesus. I'd probably be irritated. But Jesus says this, how long have you been walking with me and yet you still don't get it? And then he makes this profound statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I believe it's this I am statement that answers Thomas' question 
and fulfills Philip's request. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are three concepts tied into this one statement. I am the way or the hodos. Number two is I am the aletheia or the truth. And I am the life or the zoe, the life. The hodos or the way, this phrase, the way, plays a very significant role in church history. In fact, Christians, I don't know if you are familiar with this or not, but they didn't refer to themselves as Christians. In fact, that was a name that was given to them, and it was actually a way to make fun of them. They were called like, they did everything that Christ, they were called mini Christ. Now, for those of you uh, in here, that, that's, I'm fine with that one. You want to call me little Christ? That's okay. I mean, of course, I'm not God, but I mean, if you want to say that I look like him, like that's my goal in life. But when the word Christians was first given to the church, that was not a good thing. It was actually a, a statement that was made to put them down. The way is an interesting phrase because prior to being called Christians, the church, the early church was originally called the people of the way. It's kind of cool. When I read it, I'm like, oh, I kind of want to go back there. But the reason why they were called the people of the way is because Jesus spoke so much about the way to God, the way to the kingdom, and the way to the Father. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those enter by it are many. For the, gate is, for, enter, um, for the gate that is narrow and the way that leads to life, that gate is narrow and few go thereby. And Jesus was always talking about the way to the Father, the way to salvation, and the broad way and the wide way and the narrow way and the, and the small way. And he was also talking about the entryway into the sheepfold. He was always talking about the way. And so Christians called themselves the people of the way. Access and entry to the Father's house where Jesus was going to prepare a place was difficult to find. And, and Thomas wanted a map. And I don't blame him, but Jesus says, I'm the map. I am the way. And my words are the map. My words are the instructions. By calling Christ the way, we are declaring that he is the full and complete revelation of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. If you know Jesus, then you know God. Knowing him, hearing him. Seeing him means that you've known, heard, and even seen the Father who is in heaven. Now this is important. In our search for God and in our desire to live in his house, we will never get beyond Jesus. We will never learn something about the Father that Christ has not already shown us or told us. Look at Colossians 1.15. It says this. He is, referring to Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 declares, He is, referring to Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the words, by the word of His power. When Jesus says He is the way, what He's saying is that He's the path to seeing the Father clearly. When Jesus says, I am the way, he says, I am the path to seeing the Father clearly. The only way we can see God is by looking at Jesus. Jesus says, I am the truth, but I'm going to skip that. I'm going I'm to take it out of order, and I'm going to talk about the life right now. He says, I am the life, or the Zoe life. Some of you here last week, we discussed, there is a kind of life that is birthed in the soul, the moment the heart believes. This life is immune to death, amen? And it continues to exist long after the body decays. Not only does Jesus possess this life, not only can Jesus give this life away, but he is this life. Jesus is the embodiment of Zoe. He can give it away, and he can even use it on himself. Death does not harm Jesus. So in order to experience this Zoe, we must first invite Jesus to dwell in the rooms of our hearts. In order to experience Zoe, we must first invite the embodiment of Zoe to dwell in our hearts. Now notice this. We can't access the Father's rooms until we give His Son access to our rooms. Somebody needs to walk out of here with that. 
We can't access the Father's rooms until we give the Son access to all of our rooms. Well, I'm going to give the Son access to the front room, not the bedroom. <laughs> oh, you know, I'll give him the front room, the bedroom, but keep him out the closet. I, there's a particular closet. I got some things in there, right? Jesus wants access of all the rooms. All the rooms. We can't dwell with him in the future heaven unless we first allow Jesus to presently dwell with us here and now. Are you with me? So you might be asking in this place, how do I give Jesus a home in my heart? Some of you might be wondering, how, how do I receive Jesus? How do I give him a home right now in my heart? And here's the answer. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him. And we will make our home with him. Isn't that crazy? So how do I have access to his home? By giving him a home in me. How do I give him a home in me? I mean, does Jesus come down here and he open, does he build something in there? I mean, how does he walk in? It's kind of difficult for a human body to get in my heart. I don't really get this concept, right? He says this, if you obey my words. When we prepare a home, if you think about it, when we prepare our homes to receive an esteemed guest, have you ever prepared your home to receive an esteemed guest? How about a permanent esteemed guest? Oftentimes we do what we can, right, to accommodate their wishes. Some of you don't do that. That means your guest is not esteemed. <laughs> but oftentimes, I could just sense some of you are like, well, I had a guest come in, but I didn't do much for them. <laughs> but oftentimes we accommodate them. We accommodate them. In, in this American culture, we don't get that. Other cultures, that is something important. In other cultures, they accommodate. Everything's clean. Everything is prepared perfectly so that when that guest comes in, they will feel at home. Spiritually, we do this for the Father and the Son when we take time to study and discover their words. We find out what they like. We find out what they dislike. So that we can humbly present to them a dwelling place that's fit for them to stay. Finally, Jesus says, I am the way. We went over the life. And I want to end this morning with the truth of the aletheia. I saved this concept for last because truth is clearly under attack in our culture. I don't know if you guys remember, but. When Pilate in his private quarters was, when Pilate was confronting Jesus. I don't know if you remember this story. But when Jesus, thank you, when Jesus was arrested, he was flogged, sent back and forth all night. Finally, uh, the Israelites didn't have the power to, to um, the Israelites did not have the power to sentence someone to death. Not to mention their laws on that day um, would not allow them to sentence someone to death. So what they did was they set Pilate up. They wanted Jesus to die, and so they sent Jesus to Pilate. And there's some interesting interaction. But as Pilate and Jesus are talking privately, and some of you guys remember that scene where they go off and they're on their own and they're having this conversation. Jesus says to Pilate, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Stay with me, we're almost finished. Jesus says to Pilate, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Isn't that really interesting? It's been a theme, right? The good shepherd, you hear my voice, my sheep know my voice. This has been a theme. Knowing his voice, knowing his words, this has been a theme for Jesus. He says, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, do you remember what Pilate says? He says, what is truth? Some of you in here today still hold on to that concept. It's here in this conversation with Jesus that Pilate exposes his worldview. A worldview that is not much different then what our culture faces today, for Pilate and for many today, absolute truth does not exist. Pilate, although living in a pre-modern time, 
is a postmodernist. Even though he was looking at the truth in the eyes, he couldn't discern it. So what is truth is the question this morning. We're told in Scripture that God the Father is the God of truth. We're told in Scripture that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. In fact, here in John 14, we're told that he says, I am the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And the Apostle Paul calls Scriptures the word of truth. John Calvin says, nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. So any attack against truth, any attempt to cause one to doubt the existence of absolute truth, is an attempt against God and his words. I want to finish this morning's message by giving you four characteristics of godly truth. And there's an article that I was reading by Stephen Lawson. It's called What is Truth? And these four characteristics just kind of really stood out to me. And so I kind of want to pass them along to you this morning. What is truth in a world where truth is relative? Well, that's true for you and that's true for me. And you're true and I'm true and we're all true. So we're okay. But I want you to know that that mindset and that worldview, some of you may even hold that. I want you to know that's antithetical to Scripture. Four characteristics of truth. Number one, truth is divine. Truth is from above. It's not of this world. It's not determined by opinion polls. Amen. It's not determined by a public survey. God is the only revealer of truth. Sin is whatever God says it is. Judgment is whatever God says it is. Salvation is whatever God says it is. Heaven and hell are whatever God says they are. It does not matter what man says. Only what God says. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says this. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar. Truth is divine. Number two, I want you to know this morning that truth is absolute. Without truth, I'm sorry, without God, there can be no absolutes. Think about it. Without God, there can be no absolutes. Without absolutes, there can be no objective universal truths. Without absolutes, truth becomes subjective. It becomes relative. It becomes pragmatic. It's whatever you want it to be. Without absolutes, truth gives way to mere personal or cultural preferences. If I'm uncomfortable with that, then that's not true. The issue of our day is whether absolute truth is true for everyone, no matter who they are, where they live, or what they do. To deny the existence of absolute truth is to deny the existence of God. Because he's absolutely true. And his words are absolutely true. Number three, truth never contradicts. Truth never contradicts. Because truth is found in God, who is one body of truth. It is always internally consistent. It always speaks with one voice. And it always in perfect agreement with itself. It's always in harmony with everything else it says. Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. In other words, truth presents a singular world view. It presents one origin for the universe, one problem for the human race, one way to salvation, one way to holiness, one standard for the family, one plan for human history, one consummation of the age. James Montgomery says this, truth holds together. There is no phrase of truth that is not related to every other phrase of truth. All things that are true are part of the truth and stand in proper relationship to God who himself is the truth. I feel like I want to read that again. Truth presents a singular worldview. You ready? It presents one origin for the universe. One problem for the human race. One way to salvation one way for holiness, one standard for the family, one plan for human history, one consummation of the age. Number four, because of these things, truth is authoritative. It carries authority. Because all those first three are right, 
Number four is truth is authoritative. It does not stutter, amen? And it speaks with the supreme authority of God himself. <laughs> truth always makes demands of us and never offers suggestions. Let that sink in. Sometimes we don't like truth demands of us, but it never offers it. Hey, I have a suggestion for you. No, truth says this is true. This is what you must do. It never presents just one more option to consider. It's not one of many options. Options. Truth is commanding. Truth is arresting. Truth is directional. It has authority to order us. Truth, therefore, must be heard. We cannot act as if it will go away, nor can we live in denial of it. It lays hold of us. It draws us close. It mandates our complete compliance. Truth demands a response. Truth possesses supernatural powers. It will set you free. Amen. It will deliver you from sin. Amen. It cleanses and purifies. It penetrates the heart. It cuts the bone and the marrow. Truth converts people to Christ. Truth sanctifies. Truth strengthens. Truth renews our minds. Have you been in the truth lately? Truth revives our hearts. It redirects our steps. See, we were going that way, but truth turned us around. Truth has the final word on all matters. Truth tells us how to worship. Truth tells us how to walk. Truth points to Christ Jesus, who is the truth personified. And I'm going to end with this. All people are measured by that truth. And so the truth will have the final say in every single person's life when they stand before the one who is true. All people are measured by that truth. And so the truth will have the final say in every single person's life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspirechurches.com.